As long as there have been personal computers, people have been using them to make games. They have made them alone, they've made them with friends, they have formed companies and sold them, they've given them away for free. People from all walks of life have made all kinds of games for all kinds of reasons. Most conventional game history leaves out games that didn't have a large impact on the broader industry. But the history of the games industry is not the history of games. There are countless games that run the risk of being forgotten entirely, but they mattered to somebody. Who made them? How? Why? Whose lives did they touch? The Fringe Game History Podcast is my attempt to tell some of those stories which might otherwise be lost. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Fringe Game History Podcast. I'm Jeremy Penner, and my guest today is Leonard Richardson. Uh, today we're going to be discussing a broad range of topics, running a BBS, writing interactive fiction, archiving Minecraft, and the indefinable Robot Finds Kitten. We recorded this interview on December the 3rd, 2017. The music you're listening to right now is Choppy the Pork Chop, which is a song that Leonard wrote, inspired by a click-and-play game that he hosted on his BBS. Welcome to the Fringe Game History Podcast. Leonard, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Um, my name is Leonard Richardson. Uh, I grew up in California. I live in New York uh, right now. I'm a software developer for the New York Public Library. Um, I'm also a science fiction writer, um, and general man about town. <laughs> yeah, and so I think today I'd like to talk a little bit about um, kind of the your kind of prehistory, early early work, because you have kind of been active in a number of interesting kind of niche game creation communities, um, kind of in your in your past, and uh, kind of produced some some interesting stuff. So I'm I'm really eager to to kind of dig into that and and start talking about it. All right. Um, so I'm going to ask you the same question I ask, uh, everybody, but, uh, how did you first realize that you personally could, uh, learn to make games? Um, I think by realizing that a game that I already had on my computer, um, had source code. Um, it was a, it was a DOS computer, um, and you would there were these little basic programs that you'd run in GW Basic, and at some point I learned that you could get a program listing, um, mm-hmm. and that these a lot of these games were not very complicated, and that you could make a game that was uh, more or less just asking some questions and doing some math or some string manipulation and then uh, printing out their result. And mm-hmm. that would give the same kind of fun experience as a as a more complicated game. Right. You remember any kind of the your first steps into stuff you might have played with or, you know, editing stuff or making new stuff? Um I don't remember I don't remember first steps. I remember there was a um when I was very young there was a really um really pointless game where you would, um, I may be misremembering this, but I'm not making it up. Um, there, it was a taco eating contest. Okay. And uh, you're you're in competition against the computer to in this taco eating contest, and you type in the number of tacos you can eat, 
And the computer says, oh, that's nothing. My my brother can eat N plus two tacos. Nice. Oh, man. Yeah, that, that actually kind of sounds familiar. Like, I wonder, like, would that have come out of, like, a, a programming book or, you know, a book of source code listings? It's possible. Um, I th- uh, This was probably a game that was on a disc that I got from my great aunt. Okay. Um, and uh, that game, uh, there were, there was also a disc that had the Colossal Cave Adventure on it, which was really incredible for me when I was, when I was little. Mm-hmm. But there were also just these little tiny, goofy, um, basic games. Right. You would mess around with, you you do like, start playing around changing them and stuff, or? I don't remember when I was changing things and when I was um, just writing my own little programs that were ripoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I did a lot of changing of source code, but I think I did a lot of uh, re-implementing. Yeah, yeah. I think I was I was kind of the same way. Do you still have any of that old stuff? Um, I may have I may have some old basic games, but I mm-hmm. think that is. I don't think I could bring myself to share those. <laughs> That's fair. Because I'm, you know, 10, 11. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm too self-conscious. Sure. So one of the things I wanted to, to kind of dig into a little bit on this podcast is when you were when you were pretty young, you had started a BBS. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I. Um, so I'm, this was from 1993 to 1996. Um, I was living in the middle of a grape field in Central California, about six miles from a town of 15,000 people. Um, so all my friends were at least six miles away. Um, but I had discovered um, uh, through the Prodigy online service um, mm-hmm. that, you know, with the same modem you used to call the Prodigy online service, uh, which cost money, you could call B- local BBSs for free. And um, this was near Bakersfield. Um, Bakersfield w- was the home of a company that made BBS software, uh, Mustang mm-hmm. Software. They made the Wildcat BBS suite. And so there were, I think, probably a disproportionate number of BBSs in the Bakersfield area given its population. Um, so I lucked into being in a good place for BBSs and, um, I almost, as soon as I started calling BBSs, I wanted to run one because I felt, um, I felt the, the allure of creating your own virtual space that you controlled and that people would come and visit. Right. So basically you kind of started calling and then yeah i really wanted to dig into that which is an impulse i totally understand uh although not when i personally had the uh had the ability or the resources to pull off Mm -hmm. when i was a kid um because of like uh your financial situation or because you were born in the wrong time uh wrong place really like the what I, i grew up in rural manitoba okay and really had no i was like literally like maybe a kilometer like the the property line where the the phone prefix you know mm-hmm. I had a 322 phone mm-hmm. number and if I if we'd just been a little bit for, closer to the city we would have had a, a 467 number which could 
then we could have actually like paid for uh free like winnipeg would have been a local call mm -hmm. um but it didn't have that and so like calling bbs's for me was this thing that was like even just calling them was basically it was a long distance call uh there was nothing local um and i mean also i was like on a party line mm -hmm. and stuff which was you know nobody's gonna call into that um yeah i, sim I sympathize um, yeah, I, looking back, I was really fortunate that I happened to be living near, uh, a place where they made BBS software. Mm -hmm. So is that, uh, is that kind of the software that you use, the Wildcat or? Yeah. Yeah. I got it. I, f I feel like I got it for a Christmas present in 1992 and then I spent about six months sort of figuring it out and planning everything and then uh, the mm -hmm. BBS launched in June of 1993, uh, I guess, once school got out. Okay. That's that's kind of an amazing Christmas gift, I have to say. <laughs> uh. Well, it wasn't it wasn't unprompted, I can tell you that. Yeah. I probably talked my mother's ear off about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was it was yeah it was the first big the serious piece of software that I'd ever used, um, mm -hmm. you know, apart from like WordPerfect to write papers and, and whatnot. Right. Um, so I took it really seriously and I really wanted um, my BBS to be successful. Um, one of my friends from Prodigy also fortuitously happened to live in Bakersfield, um, Andy okay. Sheely. Um, so Andy and I were the co-sysops of, uh, of my BBS. Um, and right. that was sort of the beginning of my real, real world friendship with Andy. Okay. That's cool. So yeah, this was the Da Warren BBS. Yes, it was Da Warren BBS. And I called it that because every other BBS was used, um, the word the, and okay. just this almost pathological need to do something <laughs> different. I chose, um, a different word that had the same meaning. Right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what, uh, someone who would dial into this BBS might find. Sure. So, um, one downside of being in the town where they make the BBS software is, uh, most of the BBSs look the same. Um, mm -hmm. they're sort of running out of the box BBS software, or, um, there was, there were some other, there was an, you know, some other, less commercial pieces of BBS software, which were more, um, you know, more leet, more K rad. Um, right. and so most of the teenagers who were running BBSs in town, um, used one of these, you know, uh, more, uh, you know, more colorful, ANSI and, and drawing oriented, uh, looks. Right. Um, so, I'm, I'm running sort of this more commercial, more serious, more adult software, but I've heavily customized it um, to give a more um, friendly and, in retrospect, teenage appearance. So <laughs> it's sort of in between your buttoned-down um, Wildcat BBS where you go to share homebrewing recipes or whatever, and right. the, um, you know, the 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 anarchist dungeon bbs where you go to get 
text files about how to meet how to mix bleach and ammonia or you know your right. pirated copy of king's quest five or or what have mm. you um so it's, the look is somewhere in between there um in terms of the content um Andy and I put a lot of work into making sure that there was a lot of interesting uh, stuff in the files area, file areas. Mm -hmm. Um, We had uh, a couple of different um, forums, um, which were never as active as I liked. And in retrospect, I'm kind of glad they weren't more active because it would have just been um, teenage boys doing teenage boy things for the most part. Um, And then we had a ton of door games. We probably had 80 to a hundred door games. Um, okay. Well, most BBSs in that area would have from zero to four. Um, so I, but I loved, you know, going through all these lists of door games, um, downloading them, trying them out, setting them up. And because, uh, the BBS of the, company that made the BBS software was a local call. Um, everybody who made a door game uploaded their door game to that BBS um, so that, you know, anyone running a Wildcat BBS would download it, try it out. So I got all of those. I tried them all out. And if it was interesting in any way, um, even if it wasn't strictly speaking a game, um, mm-hmm. I would stick it into our door menu and uh, I think most of the time nobody would ever try it but I got to try a lot of different cool pieces of software that are now forgotten right yeah I remember when I was a little bit older probably still a teenager but like you know 2000 2001 um, finding you know kind of a way to set up like a a telnet bbs Mm -hmm. and kind of run you know even then it was kind of retro to you know, be able to set up these door games and stuff, but kind of muscling through it. And like, um, yeah, there's just this, there was an incredible variety of stuff out there in comparison to like what actually was popular. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, every BBS has, you know, like exactly like zero to four, right? Like it's trade wars and it's legend of the red dragon. And like everybody is playing that. But people made all, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, that was just not, it never got, it never spread, it never went anywhere, and there was nowhere you would go to, like, stumble on it, um, and to, like, you know, even, like, to, to play it as a one, one player, you know, experience or whatever, mm-hmm. is just this enormous, weird pain in the butt that doesn't quite work, <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember finding, you know, a, a web page that had, you know, hundreds of these door games mm-hmm. that you could download and play with, and it was just, like, I was blown away by how much was out there. Yeah, and we, Andy and I, probably mostly myself, um, we just had this this dislike of doing the thing that everybody else was doing, and we didn't, I don't think we even had Trade Wars until sometime, you know, sometime after, well after the BBS launch, basically because users that we liked were requesting Trade Wars, um, right. but my feeling was the world is full of interesting things, even in, you know, 1993 yeah. in the middle of nowhere, I can tell that there's all these interesting things in the world and, and that 
you should want to do more than call five VBSs every day to play your Trade Wars 2002 turns. Right, exactly. And so that's, you know, just offering people this this cornucopia of door games, of files to download. Um, I think of the things that I took out of my years running the BBS, that's the one that has that is stuck with me. And that's the one that in retrospect, I'm not embarrassed by. Sure. Yeah. Um, you need to tell me a little bit about, uh, some of the more interesting door games that maybe nobody really got to see, but you. Oh, geez. Um, the problem is I have good records of the, the file directories. I -hmm. have archives of the message boards but i don't think i have archives of what door games we had um this sort of the history of my bbs went through a very small funnel um because after i went off to college i sold the hard drive um Mm -hmm. before i sold the hard drive we uh, me and my friend uh, dave griffith um who you may know as the author or maintainer of the unix version of the frots interpreter Okay. Um, Dave Griffith came over and we made a tape backup. So basically anything that wasn't on that tape backup has not survived. Um, so I don't think I have a good record of which door games. Um, I Mm. remember like a mess of sort of ZZT or roguelite games where you're, you're moving a a character around. Um, I remember a large number so many that I got kind of selective, a large number of turn-based, um, choice-based games, similar to Legend of the Red Dragon or Trade Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a lot of just weird trivia games or um, things that aren't really games. Um, like, there was a... One thing I do have records of is there was a door game that we set up called the DeWarren Home Shopping Network. And I don't know what the door was, but I I looked at the database today and the database has these made up products that we're selling. Nice. (laughs) Um, And it's just, it's sort of like a a work of, of speculative fiction where right. we've created um, these products based around our BBS mm-hmm. and we're selling them. Um, it must have been some sort of door where you sold merchandise, right? Right. Um, but I don't even know how that would have worked. Uh, <laughs> but I probably saw this door on the, you know, the Wildcat BBS and I downloaded mm-hmm. it and I was like, all right, I'm going to take a day and make up some products and mm-hmm. stick this up on my BBS and no one's ever going to look at these, <laughs> at these, at these listings. Um, but it was just, it was all in the name of creating more interesting options for people. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I feel like it, for me anyway, like that, that, that time of my life, uh, you know, in that era, um, you know, was it, was was a thing where you know maybe you might see like a more professional program or you know have more serious uh program for more serious purposes but if you could get it to run then you could play with it yeah and like that was just kind of what i did 
Yeah, me oh. too. Um, I remember my mother bought a program called Managing Your Money, which was, as the name implies, a program about uh, managing your money. And mm-hmm. I loved going through... It had a really long tutorial. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved going through the tutorial because the, the, you know, the structure of the tutorial assumed that you were an adult with right. assets and... <laughs> So it was sort of a, a little bit of role playing where you're you're fantasizing about being a grown up and um you know I've got you know three thousand dollars worth of stocks in in these companies and I've got uh, you know a right. Lego set worth seventy five dollars or whatever <laughs> um and just going through the you know role playing an adult going through the tutorial of this application was a a fun activity. Right. It's, it's something that was kind of made accessible. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it's kind of easy to pick up. The, I think the software back then also kind of expected nothing in terms of, like, literacy mm-hmm. um, around how to use it or how, like, there were no kind of expectations. So I kind of had to, to you know, have kind of a, a low ceiling or have a an extensive tutorial that kind of walked you through what things... I remember... Um, when I first started to encounter programs, you know, uh, I, like I got a, a the Microsoft C compiler mm-hmm. and it looked like QBasic, you know, it had the same UI, but like then I would look through the help files and it'd be like, it's not telling me how to do graphics. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, um, but there was a lot of stuff that was just kind of, you know, really accessible and, and, you know, even, even if you weren't the, the intended audience at all, like you could still play with it. Yeah, yeah, even if you can't do what it was intended to do, just interacting with software is fun. Mhm. So you talked uh, you mentioned uh a little bit back uh ZZT. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm curious um cuz there is kind of a fairly active still um ZZT kind of archival community and such. Um I follow a, a Tumblr that is Worlds of ZZT. Mm-hmm which uh, just takes random screenshots of random archived ZZT worlds and, like, posts them. And, like, your your name actually came up, like, a couple of days ago, one of the, the House of Bob or something oh, well. like that. One of these, these old ZZT worlds that you'd made. So I'm kind of curious, um, I mean, you've got kind of some stuff up there. Did people contribute? Was there any kind of community around that? Was that more mm-hmm. something that you would have done on Prodigy? Or how did... Tell me a little bit about ZZT. Sure. So there was a there was a pretty big archive of ZZT games on my BBS, um, and I feel like that archive may have saved a number of ZZT games from from being lost. Um, mm-hmm. I believe um, most of those ZZT games came from Andy, and I don't know how he got them. Um, okay. Which makes it sound like I'm trying to blame Andy for it, um, <laughs> which I'm not. I just don't remember. Um, I think it's great that he he got the games, but I don't. I have no idea where he got them. Um, but Andy and I were both into ZZT. I think I bought ZZT on a disc on a floppy disc at an outlet mall in Barstow, California, because um, there was a you know sort of half price books type store there, and they also had these big um uh sort of 
like you'd see in a in a record shop or a comic book shop um mm-hmm. these long boxes but they were full of floppy disks um and so we we stopped there and you know i bought a few um bought a few floppy disks because the names on the disks look in, looked interesting zzt was one right. of them um mm-hmm. pretty sure that's how i discovered zzt um and uh you know i t- i showed it to andy andy got into it as well not sure where he got um where he got those or possibly i got them don't just don't mm-hmm. remember um sure. but yeah I made my own ZZT game. That was the House of Bob. That was the one that you saw. And if you're mm-hmm. like wondering what's the the things that I'm too embarrassed to show you, take a look at the House of Bob because it's sure. And then just like make it twice as bad as the House of Bob, and that's sort of how you can imagine it. Um, mm-hmm. Then uh, Andy and I collaborated on two other uh, ZZT games. Um, and that was a sort of an activity that we did together, uh, 94, 95. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I answer your question? I kind of rambled a bit. Well, I asked, pretty much asked you to ramble about ZZT okay. for a bit. So Yeah, so once I, once I left for college, once the BBS shut down, I didn't do any more ZZT work um, mm-hmm. or even think about it all that much. Um, later on, it turned out that... Um, Allison Parrish, who I met, um, after college, um, was big in the ZZT community and Mm -hmm. had apparently heard about me possibly through, through the games I made with Andy. Um, but it's just one of those small world things. I don't think we encountered each other until we met in person after college. Sure. So this was just the... Your experience with ZZT was largely like you had a BBS, so you put stuff up and you played with your friends with it. Yeah, and there there were some people that I knew in college, and I knew them through the ZZT community. So, but I was very peripheral um, mm-hmm. in that community. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure how all the pieces fit together. Sure, it's kind of you know it's a very um, trying to build there's no no such thing as like a centralized ZZT community mm-hmm. like in that era there's no internet right there's no way for that to for people to find each other intentionally is very difficult i think um which is kind of one of the one of the reasons why i'm i kind of want to do this podcast is like you know there's there's so many kind of artifacts which spread you know kind of away from their creators and you know and everyone kind of involved is really disconnected from each other. But mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, um, we can kind of, I feel like picking up those pieces might be interesting and might be able to start drawing some lines between things again. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of when I was trying to find things for the BBS because we would just pull that, pull that from anywhere. I, I, you know, we'd call all the local boards, try to find interesting things. Um, once we had, um, access to FTP. I went to all the FTP sites on the internet. Um, once we had Usenet access, World Wide Web access, we would, there was a period of mainly in 95 and 96 when we would sort of copy web pages 
off of the World mm-hmm. Wide Web and strip out the HTML, turn them into text files, and then put the text files on the BBS. Um, because, you know, a lot of people didn't have web access. And even, you know, I got FTP access and then web access. It was like access to individual protocols. Andy had a Usenet account. I don't know how. Um, mm-hmm. But just we were still in the mindset of uh, find this little piece of uh find this little file and whether it's on another bbs or whether it's on an internet and then i'm going to sort of squirrel it away in our bbs to make our bbs more interesting um yeah a mindset that maybe has a has a there's a related mindset today but it's it's not something that you see anymore yeah it's like the the first class thing now right if you want to share something you 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 have a link right Mm -hmm. you have this this ubiquity you have a url and this is this incredible ubiquitous piece of technology that says hey here's the thing and here's the source of that thing mm-hmm. whereas um kind of in the pre-web days um the way of sharing something is you made a copy of it and then it was you know completely divorced from context right and it also has its own metadata because when right. when i upload a file to the bbs i've got to write a description for it and so mm-hmm. a text file you know, that's 500 bytes long may have a, has to have a description that's, you know, 160 bytes long. Right. So that somebody knows, do they want to bother downloading it? Right. Um, it's kind of the next thing I wanted to talk uh, about, uh, kind of the next thing uh, chronologically, if I'm looking at your software page on your website or whatever is, and um, something, I don't know, you you've, actually given a talk about recently uh, but uh, robot finds kitten mm-hmm. um, which is this kind of amazing piece of folk game uh, art that spread in this very interesting way which I haven't seen a lot of other uh, a lot of other examples of um, but uh, yeah do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what robot finds kitten is how it uh, how it came to be sure um, so in the talk that you mentioned, I described Robot Finds Kitten as probably the simplest, interesting roguelike game. Um, it's, uh, the original version was for DOS and all the versions are, it's a one, one play field game. Uh, you're a gray hash mark, which is robot. Um, there's a number of other um, characters scattered around the screen randomly, um, and those are what's known as the non-kitten items. Um, mm-hmm. You move robot around, you touch the non-kitten items, and each one has a little pre-written message um, that explains what it is. Um, and it's it's something random or silly. Um, and but one of but not kitten right but not kitten it's it's something else um however one of these items is secretly kitten um and when you touch kitten you get a cute little animation um it says way to go robot you found kitten um and then you've won the game so it's a very simple game it's impossible to lose um and you sort of walk around this surreal environment uh sort of admiring little tiny chunks of text and then you uh then you find kit and win right uh, i you know what i really should have done is like pulled up some of the non-kitten item uh, uh descriptions i can i can look them up real quick sure 
Okay, so here's here's I found the list of original non-kitten items. Um, the first one is sort of sets the tone, and I like it a lot. It's uh, I pity the fool who mistakes me for kitten, says Mister T. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of your canonical non-kitten item. It's Mister T, and right. he's he's kind of upset that someone might might believe him to be kitten and and go touch him. Um, right. There's also um, a Mentos wrapper. Uh, it's a Java applet. Um, this is an anagram. I always liked. Um, it's a, a 3D wireframe hot dog floating in space. That was always one of my favorites. I don't know. It's it's this kind of. Uh, I discovered this game. Um, it would have been early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, because I would I had gotten a Palm Pilot. Um, I was actually working, um, I was going to school and working at a software company at the same time and everyone there had Palm Pilots and I thought they were really cool. And so I think it, at, at some point I managed to uh, acquire one for myself and then I would go to, you know, all these Palm Pilot freeware, shareware mm-hmm. websites mm-hmm. and I would just download everything that looked interesting. Um, and then there is a, there's a Palm Pilot port of Robot Finds Kitten, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, this weird, you know, touchscreen based, not nothing DOS like about it at all, basically complete re-implementation. Um, but I was just enraptured by it. It was just the most, just one of the weirdest, most interesting things I'd ever come across. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, um, this, this, the original was written for a contest, which I guess it was the only entry. Yeah. Um, the facts are unclear, um, but the <laughs> the um, I believe what happened is uh, Pete Peterson too, um, who was I think then a college student, as was I. This is nineteen ninety seven. Um, mm-hmm. Had a he he went to a, a Christian college in Chicago called North Park College. Okay, um, and he ran a humor magazine called North Pork, um, right. a travesty on the name of the college. Um, they had a, or he ran a contest um, called Robot Finds Kitten. Um, the name of the contest, the name Robot Finds Kitten, was suggested by our mutual friend, Jacob Berendez. Um, mm-hmm. And the version of events I think happened, I think is most likely, <laughs> is there was sort of a first round of the contest, um, but everything that was submitted showed uh, robots sort of herding kittens, um, mm-hmm. finding kittens for, for purposes of, of harm. Um, and so the contest was kind of relaunched with a focus on not hurting the kittens. Um, right. And in that contest... Um, my, uh, the program that I wrote called the robot finds kitten, I believe was the only entry in not going for the lazy joke. You were the only one who managed to pull themselves up and then produce this bizarre piece of, uh, I don't know what, what the noun is. Software. Exactly. The Zen <laughs> simulation, I guess is the noun. Yeah. That, that is the official noun. Yeah. Finds kitten. Yeah. That's not the term I would use today, but that's, um, that's what, uh, Pete called it and I was I was happy with that because it does it's not a typical game but it's it's not really a simulation either 
It's mm-hmm. it's a space where you can go to um, to sort of relax. Yeah, creative constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the interesting things that happened um, with Robot Finds Kitten, which I'm curious of your perspective on, um, because I I kind of I I have a different perspective on it uh, as a contributor. Um, but one of the things that happened with it is that there are a million different similar versions of this game. Um, there were ports, basically, um, where mm-hmm. because the game is so simple um, and because it's people got, in, you know, people found it interesting and it's simple and they kind of re- would take it and remake it or um, put it on another system. Um, so that they could they could play it, you know, on their Palm Pilot, or um, or whatever else. Um, I'm and I am responsible. I did the very straightforward uh, ports to the Commodore 64 mm-hmm. and the Apple II, um, to which I added a couple of probably not very interesting non-kitten items that were kind of custom to those okay. platforms. Um, and then I had also started on an Atari 2600 version, which I never completed because that's a whole kind of different beast. Yeah, that's that's a white whale. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's a very textual game, and text on the Atari 2600 is a very challenging proposition mm-hmm. given the primitives that you have and, you know, kind of the... Uh, minuscule amount of RAM and the graphics primitives. Right. Um, but kind of when I encountered it, this this game, Robot Finds Kitten, for the first time, there was already kind of this flourishing scene of people just taking this and, and kind of running running with it in their own weird directions. I think not long after, there, I, there's a Dreamcast port that you can burn to a CD and run on your Sega Dreamcast, and I was playing around with that. And um, I... And there's like some some really kind of out there interpretations. There's like an, a 3D OpenGL uh, port where there's a it's basically you control this cube that has a texture of the the hash <laughs> sign on it on all six sides, and you bump into other cubes that have random letters or ASCII characters on them. Um, and uh, yeah, that, there's just kind of all these different interpretations. Uh, a varying kind of, uh, very fidelity. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious what that kind of felt like to watch, um, that, that whole process of people taking Mm -hmm. this, this thing that you built and, and kind of running with it in their own way. Yeah. So, um, so the, I wrote the DOS version in 1997 and then that was right around the time I stopped using DOS. Um, uh, and so I wanted to learn Linux programming. Uh, so I did a curses version, uh, for Linux. And then, um, I'm looking at an email I got from Peter, uh, which he sent me while I was doing research for my talk. And, um, what Peter thinks happened is, uh, he showed the, the Linux version to our mutual friend, Nick Moffitt, um, shortly mm-hmm. after I wrote it and, um, they were, Nick really liked it. Uh, people on an IRC channel, they hang out on really liked it. And so they sort of, um, 
sort of took it from me, um, right. which it was legitimate because it was a GPL piece of software. Um, mm-hmm. But they uh, sort of set up a, a domain name, um, put it on SourceForge, and sort of started encouraging this porting activity. And I think once it got started, it sort of took on a life of its own because, like mm-hmm. you say, it's it's something where if there's a platform and you want to learn the platform, it's a really good thing to get started with. Right. Um, so uh, not without my knowledge, um, this happened, and but it wasn't my idea and I wasn't really driving it. Um, and so mm-hmm. to me, it just seemed like the sort of thing that, that happened naturally. Um, it was the sort of thing that might happen if you did something weird. Um, and I didn't realize at the time that... Um, Nick and Peter and, and others were sort of, uh, promoting it. Um, so from my, from my perspective, it, it feels like it happened naturally. And I think the part that happened naturally is people's individual decisions to port it to one platform or another. Um, but there was this sort of invisible infrastructural work of Mm -hmm. making the code available and promoting it in a way that I would not have, have bothered doing at the time right the robotfindskitten.org i think mm-hmm. um has a list of like every port that's available and like um download links and screenshots and i don't know if there is specifically a hey you should submit this too but there's definitely like a list of credited authors who are all different who you know here's a bunch of random people who did this work and very clear sense that you know if you did this too Mm -hmm. you could submit it and then you would be on this web page yeah yeah absolutely and and to me it was the sort of thing that somebody would do uh just as i you know wrote the game to submit to a contest and i you know took my memory of the the program where the computer says it can eat two more tacos than you can and (laughs) did my own version of it um it seemed like a normal thing for for people who like programming to do yeah, definitely. When I got excited about it and started building my ports, like it certainly felt like a, a very natural thing to, uh, you know, it was just something that I felt like I wanted, it might be fun to do and mm-hmm. wasn't a, a huge, um, you know, time commitment or effort commitment it was just something you could play around with and you could get something interesting. Yeah, it's not something that, I don't know how many abandoned Robot Finds Kitten ports there are. Um, it's, probably not that high uh there's probably a lot of abandoned 2600 ports yeah that uh, mine mine is definitely uh on that list on that very short uh distinguished list but for most computers if you if you want to if you want to do it you can do it it's it's something you can finish mm-hmm. well i mean all, all the ports that i did complete were extremely lazy ports um because i just had c compilers for them and i just pretty much ran it through the C compiler and it worked. Um, You know, I might have had to change a couple of constants Mm -hmm. or something. Um, At the risk of getting really nerdy, um, what did you do for curses? Did these, was there curses um, for these things? I think, I think that I probably had to rewrite. Okay. All right. Um, But uh, there was some kind of simple Mm. portable uh, API for, for writing text to uh, specific places on the screen. Okay, yeah. That was the the CC65, uh, 6502 compiler. Mm-hmm. 
um, kind of had the standard portable draw text to screen library. Um, so like once I had the Commodore 64 port, which I think came first, it was like, okay, well now I'm going to do an Apple port. And that was, you know, press the key and away it goes pretty much. Um, the most work I put into that was like trying to come up with clever non-kitten items to, uh, to bundle with it. Yeah. I wish I'd known. Cause when we did the, we sort of made a big, uh, robot finds kitten release in 2012. And mm -hmm. as part of that, I went through all of the ports of robot finds kitten that seems to have their own custom non-kitten items. And I sort of made a canonical list of about 700, um, which were taken from all over um, right. and sort of edited for quality. Um, so I don't think I, I don't think I looked at yours, but had I known, I would have at least looked at them and considered them for inclusion. Oh, um, here, I can actually pull up the source because now I'm curious because it's been a long time since I messed with that. Oh, maybe I don't have anything. Yeah, I did include source, mm -hmm. but it looks like the list of, of messages is just the standard. Mm -hmm. uh, starts with Mr. T and ends with a set of keys to a 2001 Rolls-Royce worthless. Yeah, those, the, the Rolls-Royce one I have heard before, um, but I didn't write it. But yeah, I do think that is in the standard list. Yeah. No, I feel like there was, uh, if I did add some, maybe I, maybe I didn't think I was clever enough to add anything. And I just, <laughs> you don't have to be clever, my friend. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I did call it, uh, did change the, uh, version string to like was edition okay, cool. for the Apple II port. Cool. And, uh, yeah, that might've been the extent of it. There's just an if def in there. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm Commodore 64, then it's the Commodore 64 edition. But yeah, that's, it was extremely portable between the Commodore 64 and the Apple II. That's good to hear. I would hope so, I guess, cause it's so simple. Yeah, it was, it was definitely something that's, that's fairly, um, easy to mangle, kind of straightforward to, to adapt. Yeah, so um, if people are more interested in Robot Finds Kitten, uh, there's definitely, I'll put a link to a playable version that's playable online in your browser in the show notes. Um, there's an excellent talk that uh, you gave recently mm -hmm. um, about kind of the, the design of it, the game design, and what are some of the more interesting lessons. Yeah, the inadvertent game design. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'll definitely link as well. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention? About Robot Fence Kitten. Um, someone asked, uh, possibly you, about a connection between Robot Fence Kitten and ZZT. Okay. Um, and because in, in, I gave the talk for the roguelike celebration, and so I was really focused on the roguelike aspects of it. And uh, mm -hmm. somebody somebody mentioned, hey, was ZZT an inspiration? Um, I mean, obviously, the vast majority of playable games I'd made up to that point were ZZT games, so I'm sure it was. But I, I think in formal terms, it is more like a... Um, it is more like a roguelike game. Specifically, mm -hmm. it's more like Rogue. Um, however, in 99, I... As a programming exercise, more than... Um, as a real game, I wrote Robot Finds Kitten 2, this time it's personal, um, mm -hmm. which was very ZZT-focused. Um, it used uh, hook functions in C, function pointers, um, so that you could write your own little um, 
you could sort of script objects with custom behavior in a robot finds kitten type game and that was very that was very much based on the uh, zz2 oop programming language not in terms of its syntax but just the idea of putting objects on the screen and giving them reactions to different stimuli um, right so certainly zzt was in my head but um i think uh overall robot finds kitten is more uh more inspired by roguelikes sure yeah i noticed um looking at your software page your game stuff you've also kind of um done some net hack hacking as well um and like you've got a kind of uh a game from the perspective of um one of the gods, I guess, in NetHack or in Rogue. Yeah, this is... Um, so nothing on this page is inaccurate, but I haven't updated it for many years. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, I wrote a game called What Fools These Mortals, which where you just play the most boring part of NetHack, which is um, you're, the, you're the deity and you're sort of watching the quote player play net hack and then deciding whether or not to answer their prayers when they get into trouble. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of like the scrolling text with decisions type game that you see in, in some of the old door games. Right. I, I noticed also there was like a couple of patches to net hack and one of them was the famous dinosaur dot patch. Um, Is it famous? So it, it sounds like somebody called it that as a joke, possibly me. Probably, yeah. Okay, all right. I thought, um, I thought maybe it was actually famous for some reason. It is famous on your software it's Famous page. in my own mind. <laughs> yeah, the, the, these NetHack patches are basically just jokes in yeah. the form of NetHack patches. Right, um, which is an interesting joke format in its way. Yeah, I think the other one it changes it so that if you eat a tiger corpse, it says, that tasted great. <laughs> that's uh, That's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, six hundred byte patch. It's like, this is this is important enough to you know put out on the internet and and share. And it's interesting to me that that uh, just as a as a piece of creative expression is this random patch file that adds a, a joke to an open source game. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I hadn't thought about these patches for a really long time. But yeah, I just noticed like the dinosaur patch is like it adds the three dinosaurs from Dinosaur Comics. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a T Rex and a Drumishimimus. Yeah, and a... it's, it's so it's also a work of fan fiction. Right. One other thing I was interested in talking about a little bit mm-hmm. um, is you also have a number. You were kind of somewhat active in the interactive fiction community in the early two thousands. Yeah. And kind of put out a, a few different games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested to to hear kind of. Kind of what got you interested in that, um, kind of what your involvement with the community was, the mm-hmm. reception to that stuff. Sure. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I was involved in the community, um, but I did I did put out a couple of games, um, sort of zooming out, looking at my life at the time. I feel like this was sort of a waypoint on the way towards um, writing fiction, uh, writing okay. static fiction. Um yeah. It was a way, it was sort of a way to bridge, you know, my ability to write computer programs with an, an emerging ability on my part to create narratives and write, you know, sentences that are interesting to read, not just because of the information they contain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a, um, 
I nearly said I was a big fan of Infocom games when I was a kid. Um, I was a mm-hmm. big fan of the one specific Infocom game that that I had been able to pirate, um, right. which was Planetfall, um, which I just loved um, until I got to the point where, uh, spoiler warning, uh, Floyd the Robot dies. And mm. I was so sad by that I stopped playing Planetfall. I didn't play it again until college. Um, mm. But just I loved the 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 setting, um, and of course the Colossal Cave, which I which I had also played when I was a kid. I loved mm. that just the inter the the interactive fictionness of it that it would describe things to you in English and and sort of tell a story that you could walk around in and you could put things into containers, take them out of containers. I love that stuff. Just the, the modeling of the world. Um, Mm -hmm. I was a big fan of, um, in the nineties, I got the first version of something that I think gets periodically re-released the lost treasures of Infocom, um, which is just all the Infocom text adventures plus all of the, um, booklets and pictures of the feelies, um, so that you can, you know, enjoy the entire package of the game. Um, so when I was in high school, I I played um, more of the Infocom games. I played, you know, your your Zorks and your Enchanters. Um, when I was running the BBS, one of the things I was always on the lookout for were uh, more text adventures, but there mm-hmm. weren't a lot to be had. I don't know if hmm. the, I don't think the interactive fiction archive was active yet. Um, no. and even if it was, I probably wouldn't have been able to find it, um, mm-hmm. unless it was an FTP site. But, um, I remember I was able to find some, some TADS games. Um, mm-hmm. and even the, the compiler, and I played around with creating um, with creating a game using the TADS language, um, but I never never got anything releasable. Okay. So that's you know I go to college around you know two thousand. I'm finishing up college, and I think at that point there is the inter- the interactive fiction archive, um, or at the very least I know about the competition. Okay. Um, and so I decided um, to write an entry for the 2000 competition. So I created my first game, Guess the Verb, um, which is basically a pastiche of um, other interactive fiction games that I had enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a pretty extended pastiche of Colossal Cave. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a perfunctory pastiche of Planetfall. I didn't put a lot of work into that one. Um, there's a really complicated pastiche of Enchanter, which is basically just a one-joke parody of the end of Enchanter, um, where, and, and how unfair that final puzzle is. Okay. Um, uh, there's a couple others that... Oh, yeah, there's, there's a um, pastiche of a game called Save Princeton, Mm-hmm. Um, which is a interactive fiction game I played in high school. It's a Tad's game where you're a Princeton student and you're walking around Princeton. Um, presumably you have to save Princeton. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I'm just going based on the title. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what danger 
the institution is in. Um, but, uh, I'm sure eventually like once, once the developer had, you know, <laughs> built out, it built out the, the model of Princeton mm-hmm. and was like, Oh, what next? Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've made, you know, done, done the, uh, the impossible, you know, made a, a map of my college, which is a, an idea that no one has ever had. Um, and now I guess I need to add some sort of conflict here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so there was say for instance, and then there's a, another Tad's game called, uh, Ditch Day Drifter, which takes place at Caltech. Um, and you know, I'm in high school. I'm, I really want to go to college because I feel like once I can leave the, this great field and, Mm -hmm. you know, be in a institute of higher learning, then my life is really going to begin and I'm going to be able to get on the internet and, you know, do whatever adults do Mm -hmm. with my life. Um, so four years later, when I'm finishing college, um, I have, you know, I have enough affection for these um, cheesy college interactive fiction games that mm-hmm. I made it the topic of one of the scenarios in Guess the Verb. I sat in a room at school and wrote an inform implementation of that room and the people inside it, including myself, um, right. fully aware that this was by 2000 interactive fiction standards, an extremely cheesy thing to do. Um, right. but I guess the verb it's, it's a pastiche of all of these genres of interactive fiction, many of which are cheesy or unfair in some way. Right. Um, so guess the verb is sort of a anthology of, uh, different types of interactive fiction, each of which is, um, focused around a puzzle that is unfair unless you know the specific word and the scenario is named after this word. So it's, um, okay. It kind of gives you the answer, making the quote unfair puzzle more about experiencing the environment. Yeah, I just, I remember when I encountered it first, just like, I don't know, I don't, I don't remember any of the, the specific scenarios, but I remember the framing mm-hmm. of it, just because, you know, you're, this, you've got this carnival barker, uh, this robot carnival barker, um, named after this, uh, named after a parser, it's, I don't know how you pronounce Lallery. La- I say Lallery. Lallery? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which is just one, one of the all-time great joke names for, uh, <laughs> you know, this incredibly you know, narrow category of robotic, you know, parser jokes, uh, you know, that have given, been given, have been personified and given names. Like, that is the perfect name for that. My, my memory of it is, is really kind of, uh, kind of the framing story of being in this carnival and, and then, yeah, getting shunted into, um, kind of one of these different puzzles or whatever. And I, I do, I do remember having a good time with it. Yeah, there's a the there's a decent puzzle I think in the the framing device where the the robot the carnival barker is asking for a shiny quarter as the only form of payment he will accept. Um, mm-hmm. But you can sort of fiddle with his programming so that he won't recognize adver- uh, adjectives or he won't recognize nouns. And right. so if you switch off one or the other, then you can present him with any shiny anything or any anything quarter. And right. he will accept it and, and let you continue with the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I remember that. Liked that puzzle. That's kind of a neat Possib- bit of... Uh... Possibly the only good interactive fiction puzzle I've ever come up with. 
Yeah, so you entered this game into the comp. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it placed eleventh. Yes, I was. I was hoping. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me because I know exactly where it placed even seventeen years later. <laughs> oh jeez. Yeah, it was eleventh out of like eighteen. It was. It okay. was. It was squarely in the middle, possibly a little, a little below average. Um, I was disappointed at the time, but I'm. I'm not disappointed anymore. It is kind of a weird throwback. Even mm-hmm. even in two thousand, um, it's you know it it is kind of a love letter to the interactive fiction I played when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I I always kind of enjoyed how it ha- hangs a lampshade on everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is really it is really silly. Um, so your next game is incredibly different. Was also something that I it was a game I never actually played, but I read through kind of your post-mortem of it mm-hmm. uh, which is is kind of fascinating it's, it's kind of a, a, a really interesting weird twist or uh, or gimmick I guess to it um, which is degeneracy mm-hmm. um, you want to talk a little bit about uh, about that and... yeah um, so degeneracy is uh, degeneracy is a text adventure where you're in a castle um, you have you're sort of a, a paladin type character. You've just um, executed the the evil ruler of the castle, and now you have to escape the castle. Um, but there's a you know the death of the evil ruler has has triggered a curse, um, and you've got a uh, you've got to get out of the castle before the the curse consumes you mm-hmm. and the rest of the castle. Um, the twist of the story is um, the nature of the curse is that you, when you start the game, you know, you're playing release 54, you're playing the final version. Over time, you you go back so that you are playing earlier and earlier versions of the game as I wrote it. And mm-hmm. so items are disappearing, um, typos are, are showing up in descriptions, um, interactions stop being implemented. Um, NPCs change their responses or they disappear after a certain point, the game becomes unwinnable, uh, because there's, you know, it's, I'm still working on the game. I don't have the part where I don't, I don't have a complete through line for the, for solving all the puzzles. Um, and once you pass that point, things go downhill pretty rapidly until, um, you, you know, at the very end, you're just going through room one, room seven, uh, and it just shows the rooms and lists the exits. And then it, uh, if you dally around in, you know, room seven for too long, then the game doesn't exist anymore and it just exits. So you've, right. you've gone backwards through the entire implementation history of the game to the point where the I hadn't even started working on the game. So right. the the more explicit goal of the game is to solve the puzzles while the puzzles still exist so that you can get out and win before the win condition stops existing. Yeah. It's just kind of, is one of these things that is, is a really fascinating idea, uh, like a really fascinating idea and it must've been murder to write. And it's kind of baffling to actually play <laughs> is my impression. Um, 
I yeah, I don't know. I don't know how baffling it is. I think I think if you go in knowing knowing the twist, then you're right. Then it's but yeah, if you don't know the twist, it 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 feels like this game is this game is buggy. This game is falling apart. You right. know this this, but it's falling apart in a way that uh, a Z machine game shouldn't be able to do. Like mm-hmm. if there's a problem, Z machine game should just crash. It shouldn't show you different text with typos in it. Right. Um, so this, this game, I think I, I think I mentioned this in the, in the postmortem. Um, I was inspired by this game when I got a, you know, graduated from college, I got a real programming job and I started using version control. Um, and it made me aware of the process of developing software as a, process that's spread out over time um and i realized that when i wrote guess the verb there were all these intermediate games which no longer exist um Mm -hmm. where the game was slightly different where it only had four scenarios instead of five or um you know where all there was was the framing device with the carnival um and so i for the second game the entire premise of the game is is you know just tracking all of the changes i made sort of creating a little version control history inside the informed source code Mm -hmm. um and uh sort of being able to play it back um so that there's i think there's a global variable in the source code that's like which release are we on and all the pieces of text (coughs) use different functions for, you know, helper functions for if the release is greater than 46, then you print, you know, thief with the E and the I in the right order. And if it's less than that, you print thief with the E and the I in the wrong order. Cause I, right. that's, that's how I would fix a typo or that's how I would change a message. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember it being that hard to, to write partly because it's a very simple game. Um, mm-hmm. There's not a lot, to the actual game. I think you can complete the game in 30 moves or so. Um, But the, certainly for a game of that apparent complexity, the source code is very, very complicated because it basically contains its own uh, revision history. Right. Yeah. I guess, you know, you kind of have a, a a solid base to, to build from within form where everything's kind of fairly self-contained. Yeah, Inform gives you all of the, you know, this is a container and things can go into it and you can put this under the other thing and this is an NPC and you can ask them about things. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting perspective to think of, you know, um, all, all of the games, uh, intermediate games in the process of, of developing it, you know, version 52 or whatever, as kind of being interesting standalone artifacts on their own. Um, yeah. And it doesn't go, it doesn't go away when I switch to static fiction. Cause when I write static fiction, I put it in a version control repository and, you know, drastic things can happen mm-hmm. in between drafts. Like a character merges, you know, gets split apart and the, the two halves of the character, all their lines get assigned to these two other characters just cause there's too many characters in the story or, you know, somebody dies, and then I realize I can't 
continue the story with this person dead, so they stop being dead. Um, right. And then, uh, yeah, so degeneracy is just making that visible within the text of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a neat way of, of not only kind of making the process explicit or whatever, but just also kind of um, just making these intermediate steps, these pieces, um, making them more real in a way. Mm-hmm. And part of the part of the experience of playing it, as well as the part of the experience of creating it, it's interesting. It's neat. Thank uh, you. One other thing I wanted to mention is uh, kind of a, a, a callback, which is I, I read the uh, or I read part of the Club Floyd transcript, which Club Floyd is, I guess, um, there's like a, a, a mud or something, um, some kind of text-based chat room mm-hmm. that people in the interactive fi- fiction community can. Yeah, I think it's on a IRC. Server? Is it IRC? I'm not sure. I guess I don't know. I've never used it. Um, but definitely there's like, it's kind of like an interactive fiction book club where people can chat and play through a game at the same time. Mm-hmm. So Floyd is this robot which you can send messages to and then it will put that input into the game and then give, you know, the full transcript to everyone who's in the room playing. There is a, a transcript of this online and yeah, just reading through. I, I read through part of it. Um, and there's one of the one of the final touches that disappears uh, very quickly. Someone tries to there's a there's a jester there's a fool mm-hmm. who's who's drunk um, or whatever. And um, one of the the last touches is is uh, robot finds kitten like uh, Mr. T joke where you can pity the fool. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the things someone tries early on. He knows it should work, but it doesn't work. And he's like, ah, we got to, I missed the joke. Like, next time we, we go through, we got to do it. Um, but, yeah, I just I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, because it's literally the first non-kitten item. I don't remember writing that, but that's exactly the sort of thing I would do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, as well as kind of uh, writing these games and throwing them into the comp, uh, kind of what your relationship was to the interactive ki- fiction community? Did you like kind of lurk on the the uh, you know news groups or uh, you know were you playing a lot of what was coming out of it? Or mm-hmm. uh, I from around two thousand, yeah, I think I did play a lot of interactive fiction. Um, as I you know as I left college and you know started started working more as I started programming, um, you know, writing non-game software. Um, I think I dropped out of that a little bit. Um, I haven't played, I haven't played a new interactive fiction release in quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um, and like I say, I was never really involved in it. I don't think that, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I actually met Andrew Plotkin earlier this year, and I think he recognized me as the author of Robot Finds Kitten and okay. didn't really have any idea that um, his game had placed one place ahead of me in the 2000 <laughs> Interactive Fiction Competition. Um, so, yeah, I not, not really a, a figure in that community even more no. i would say even more peripheral than than i had been in the zzt community a few years prior sure but i feel like um you know i would i would have been you know kind of one step more peripheral in that you know i was kind of playing some of the stuff or like mm-hmm. looking around and, and kind of reading some of it 
and you know, I was aware that there was an interactive fiction community, um, and I might have even you know played around with Inforum and tried to make stuff, but it wasn't something that you know it's not I wouldn't have posted or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's kind of also a valid way to to kind of interact with with a community like that. Um, it certainly feel, felt like um, it was kind of out in the open in an interesting way, I think, um, where, you know, all of these games are, are just there, they're archived, they're available. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of people's discussion about the design and, you know, there's all kinds of really interesting game design discussions happening in that community, like really out in the open. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're, if you're willing to dig and there's a lot of, um, a lot of internet community negativity as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, um, it's one of these things where like there is kind of a, a core, you know, maybe a core group of, of, of people who are active or who are names or whatever in this community. But there's, there's again, kind of these, these, um, these tendrils or whatever, these, uh, much looser connections where it's still reaching people. It's still, uh, you know, still getting people involved, even if they're not, um, you know, in a way that is visible to the, the insiders of the community, mm -hmm. which I think, I think is an, can be an interesting, uh, thing to acknowledge, I guess. Yeah. That the IF community and the ZZT community and the roguelike community, I, th I think have a lot of vibrancy because those are, um, areas where it's expected that one person can write a game, mm -hmm. um, start to finish and, um, so there's, there's an expectation that individual people can, um, and, and they're expected to express their creativity through, through making games. Right. If you, if you are, have the, the tools and the ability and the community to support you is, mm -hmm. can be uh, really enjoyable. Um, and with, with glorious train wrecks anyway, like, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, very similar sort of community where it's, it's bonding through, through this act of creation where people are making art and other people are, are kind of, um, for, for the rest of the people to, uh, to experience. And that's kind of a way that an interaction happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we're well over an hour now. Um, so I should probably let you go pretty soon. Is there anything else that you wanted to, uh, maybe talk about that we haven't, uh, we haven't mentioned? We haven't, um, no, I think, uh, Degeneracy was the last quote game, full game that I that I wrote. Um, mm -hmm. I I went into uh, you know writing static fiction and um, doing non-game computer programming. So sort of those two mm -hmm. parts of my life split apart. Um, I did write. I started. I started on another work of interactive fiction, which I never completed. Um, mainly because I, I think that was around the point I realized I could just write a story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing software right. all day for work. Um, don't want to necessarily come home and write more software. So if I want to tell a story, I could just write the story part. Um, right. But this was a uh, game based on, um, based on the Lord of the Rings, mm. based on the idea that the Lord of the Rings had been, um, was this thing that kind of happened in, in Europe 
in prehistory and sort of been uh, been lost in myth. But all those people were there. Like there are elves, there are hobbits, there are um, orcs, um, and now it's the twenty first century, um, and these people you know, some of them have emigrated to the United States or some of them are still living in European countries and, um, they're just, uh, you know, they're just trying to live a 21st century life in a world shaped by the events of, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, it's a very high concept idea. Um, and I think the game was too silly to support that. Um, also making a fan work on the Lord of the Rings doesn't have a great longevity track record. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I just kind of abandoned the idea. Um, but that was, uh, sort of the kind of story I realized I wanted to tell where, where there's these familiar mythic elements, but they're being portrayed, they're, they're, taking place in a very mundane, um, even dull setting. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so in this game, you were, uh, you were an Urukai. your player character was an Urukai, and you had this really mind numbing, uh, job. Um, this, this game used the enchanter spell system and your job in this, as the game started was to memorize a spell and then cast it over and over again. <laughs> Um, and then something weird happened at the factory and, um, it became a little puzzly. Um, right. so that's, I guess that's sort of the, the alternate path my life could have taken is I could have, um, made these really, you know, these really high concept works of fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, you know, uh, I don't, I feel like you know, as a creative person, um, you've certainly branched out into kind of different things like, you know, uh, playing with bots and, uh, and stuff like that. Obviously you should plug your book slash books. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I have been talking about them, but I never plugged them. Um, yeah, the, the book, the people listening to this podcast are most likely to enjoy is Constellation Games. It is a first contact novel about alien video games. And it's excellent. It's a very good book. Thank you. I, I do recommend it. Um, and you've got another one in progress. Yeah, I have, uh, I have, a, I have a novel that's on editor's desks waiting, um, waiting for action. Um, called situation normal and the elevator pitch for that one is the coen brothers do star trek okay i'm into that certainly like well i think your your path as a creative person has taken you away from uh games specifically i don't i think um there's still a lot of kind of injury you kind of went more the the darius kazemi route of which who's who's uh you know someone who was making a lot of, of games and stuff and mm -hmm. then kind of decided, oh, well, maybe what if the things I want to make aren't games? You know, they don't fit into this game-like form. Um, so kind of there's a lot of interesting web toys and, and bots and little tools and things. Yeah, I feel comfortable with that, combining um, textual creativity with programming in a way that doesn't result in it in a traditional game. Mm. 
which is, uh, you know, certainly a path with lots of, of interesting rich fruit uh, along the way. Um, oh, I want to I wanna bring up one more thing. Sure. Um, I am... I have an ongoing project to um, archive the Minecraft worlds that people create and put on the internet um, because I don't want what happened to ZZT to happen to Minecraft. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Minecraft is a thousand times, ten thousand times bigger than ZZT ever was. So um, all I can save is a fraction of it, but I do want to save a representative fraction of you know, what the creative things that, that people, especially kids, were doing with Minecraft through the the 2010s. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of my ongoing project where just every once in a while I download a whole lot of stuff and put it on, put it on hard drives for archival purposes um, and just sort of trust in the future that uh, one day this will all be this will all be useful. Mm-hmm. No, it's very, it's a, it's a very cool project. Um, and yeah, I think saving because it, it's obviously this kind of very creative game where people are make building stuff and making stuff and there's, you know, having someone out there, um, making sure that that's saved in some way. Um, because so much stuff, so much stuff gets lost if someone's not taking that step. Yeah, in between the last time I did a capture and now Dropbox changed how they do things, and I'm really worried that when I go to it again, everything on Dropbox is just going to be gone. Yeah, one of these things that uh, you know, it's the has has been happening. You know, hosts going down or or changing things or breaking things or deleting things. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know that was their only home. Um, but now, though, as as kind of time has progressed and the hosts get bigger and bigger, they can break more and more things. Yeah. Really good to to do what you can to save that stuff. Yeah, and um, I like that. I like that you've done the same. No, well, not the same thing, but you've done sort of taken responsible steps with uh, with glorious trainer X to make sure that it doesn't just become a BBS that went down one day. Yeah, I really. I kind of made a promise early on that uh, I was not going to delete your shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel good that it's 10 years on and I still haven't. So, um, and um, I do, I do want to do like an archive.org dump of basically everything um, at some point. But, uh, yeah. It's a big hassle. I have, I have all my old hard drives, you know, the, one terabyte, two terabyte hard drives that are now kind of small um, mm-hmm. are full of zip files um, that I need to give to Jason Scott um, it, where I basically created finding aids for all of the Minecraft stuff from you know 2010 to early 2017. And so there's these uh, you know 50 gigabyte zip files that represent you know, April 2015, everything that happened in, that I was able to find in the world of Minecraft um, with a finding aid so that you can just open it up in your web browser and look at all the screenshots and search everything. And it was a, it was a ton of work and I'm just really betting on the future finding it useful. 
Yeah. Um, me and my friend Mauricio put a put a lot of work into the finding aid. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's I I think it's it's super important work. I think it's really uh, and really valuable, um, because there's so much like the the more we depend on you know these random third party systems in the cloud mm-hmm. to uh, to be our interface to everything, the more um, likely it is that it's all going to evaporate one day, um, unless distinct steps are taken. Yeah, you know, concrete steps are taken to save it. Um, and I, you know, obviously doing this podcast, I think that uh, young people's creativity is is interesting and worth saving. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like all through my childhood, um, there was no there was no implication that my that my creative work was interesting. And in retrospect, that judgment was correct like i've got my creative work and i don't want to show it to anybody but um Mm -hmm. just i'm glad that i still have it um Mm -hmm. because i might change my mind or you know um somebody somebody might somebody might need to to look at it for some reason i'm Mm -hmm. i'm glad that i made it and i'm glad that i still have it uh because it was an important part of the process of forming who I am today. And Mm -hmm. if there's a kid who, you know, makes a dorky Minecraft world and puts it online, I want them to have the option of being able to get it back in 10 years. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it's, I think it's also interesting, like, um, you know, not necessarily like my, you know, it's not like my dorky, you know, 10 Q-Basic games that I made mm-hmm. when I was 10 are any more interesting than anyone else's dorky Q-Basic games that they made when they were 10. Um, but I worry a lot um, that um, people um, don't necessarily see the same path or, like, the the path to getting to, um, you know, of, of growing and of... Uh, I worry a lot that the kind of first steps of, of growth and, and making creative work, um, you know, these, these kind of weird, not really good, uh, steps. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, it's really important that they're not, they're, they're treated as valid. Um, and because if they're, if it's, if you make this thing and you know, you're not very, it's, you're not very good or you're, you're missing a lot of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, to be shut down and say, that's, that's not worth anything. Like it, it does have value, um, at, at least, you know, to, to yourself and, and as part of that path, as part of that growth. Um, and I think it's really important to, um, to be able to, you know, take steps that show that that work has value, even if, you know, it may not be that anyone looks for your particular Minecraft world. You know, someone thought that, you know, kids making stuff in Minecraft is, is, is important and, and interesting and worth saving. Yeah. Um, back in the days of BBS is everybody had a handle and I feel like the, that might be a good way to strike a balance between, you know, you're 10 years old and you want to get yourself out there 
and then you're 20 years old and you desperately want to pull all that stuff back so right. that nobody associates with, with you. Um, yeah. And that was, that was kind of a, it was kind of a blessing that, you know, when I was a teenager, I got to experiment with stuff under a, under a handle and then the vast majority of it disappeared and, and didn't make it to the present day or, you know, the only mm -hmm. copy is on my hard drive and I can share it if I want to, or, or just let it die if I want to. Yeah. Um, like doing, doing something under a handle, I think is a, is a good middle ground beyond be, between putting it out there and, and hiding it. Yeah. I think, Probably the thing I am literally like my creative output, you know, as a teenager to uh, like the thing that I would be most embarrassed about is literally my handle, um, <laughs> which was armpit man, armpit man. My handle, armpit my man. handle was, um, Hazel, like the, the rabbit from Watership Down. Okay. I love, I loved, and I love that book. Um, yeah. but, uh, this wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but calling myself Hazel made a lot of people think I was a girl. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was, yeah, I was, I was happy to have that handle. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like definitely like the things that, you know, you can, you can find stuff that's, that's young me under that na handle, but you know, it's not, not like that's really, if you Google my name, you don't. Yeah. Find yeah. It's separate. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. So sort of like an open secret. Yeah, but yeah, no, I think that's a that's an excellent uh, that's an excellent point. Being able to kind of uh, kind of block off uh, eras of your life in that way is is good. Yeah. So yeah, it's been really great talking to you. Thanks so much for for being on the show. Oh, um, it's my pleasure. No, it's it's been really good. Um, and yeah, everyone should read your book. Thank you. Um. Yeah, so I guess this has been episode five of the Fringe Game History Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Uh, take care. Bye. Bye. This has been the Fringe Game History Podcast. My guest today has been Leonard Richardson. You can find him online at crummy.com or on Mastodon at leonardr at botsin.space. As always, you can find detailed show notes on our website, fringe.games. There's also a discussion forum online now at discuss.fringe.games. I've been posting interesting tidbits there from time to time. Uh, among other things, there's an email interview that I did with a member of a 90s shareware developer, Neural Storm, and a look at a forgotten game development tool for the Palm Pilot by Japanese freeware developer Kenta Cho. It's early days, so things are still pretty quiet, but it's definitely worth checking out. There's an RSS feed you can use to keep on top of new activity. You can use your existing Google, Twitter, Steam, or GitHub account to post, and you can even get notifications of replies and mentions on your phone with the PushBullet app. As always, if you listen to the show, I'd love to hear from you. I'm looking forward to hearing about more interesting stories I'm missing from you folks on the forums. I hope you'll join us again soon here on the Fringe Game History Podcast. I'm really hoping the next new episode won't take quite as long as this one to get out the door. Thanks so much for listening. 